thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, it's Sunday the 16th of October. Welcome to The Naked Scientists. I'm Ben Valsler and joining me this week is Sarah Cust-Perry. Hello. This week, plant pests and plant pathology will be finding out what happens when plants get ill, how they can call up an insect army to defend them when they're attacked. We'll also find out why some horse chestnut trees are going brown before their time and meet the pesky critter responsible. Just hold it up against the light and you can actually see the larvae inside. You can see the outline of them just wriggling around in there. And it's just moving around. Oh, you, and you can. can see it. It's like a little worm yeah, in between so the two like layers a... of the leaf. More on that later on. Plus, in this week's news, a new technique to cleanly edit out and correct errors in the DNA code has been announced by researchers here in Cambridge. We'll find out how it works and how it can be used to treat disease very soon. But meanwhile, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can tweet at Naked Scientists right on our Facebook page. That's at facebook.com slash the Naked Scientists or drop us an email. That's to chris at the Naked Scientists dot com. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider on the web at ukfast.co.uk. This is The Naked Scientist with Ben Valsler and with Sarah Castor-Perry. And now for a look at this week's science news. Well, I've got a study that was published in PLOS One that shows that having a lower percentage of protein in the diet can lead to more snacking behaviour and more perceived hunger. A team from the University of Sydney, led by Alison Gosby, wanted to test something known as the Protein Leverage Hypothesis, or PLH. This suggests that a biological preference for a high-protein diet, combined with a decrease in the proportion of protein in the diet in relation to fat and carbohydrate, can lead to obesity. And they wanted to see if this applies to humans, as it does in other species. Almost a quarter of British adults are now classed as obese. And previous work in the United States has shown that over the last 30 to 40 years, protein intake has decreased from around 14% of the diet to 12.5% of the diet, and total energy intake has increased. The possible reason for this is that due to a lower intake of protein at mealtimes, people are craving extra protein and seek it from snack foods, which then increase their total daily energy intake. In this study, participants were fed either a 10% protein, 15% protein or 25% protein diet for three four-day periods. Their total energy intake and their perceived hunger levels were monitored over those four-day periods. And their main meals were regulated to contain just the right amount of protein. But also available were any-time foods like cheese scones, yoghurt and muffins. 
They found that the participants on the 10% protein diet increased their total energy intake by 12% compared to those on the 15% protein diet. And it was the anytime snack foods that made up 70% of the increased energy intake, rather than just eating more of their provided meal at mealtimes. It also tended to be the savoury snacks that the participants preferred, which the researchers suggest is due to the association of protein with savoury food rather than sweet. There wasn't any significant difference in energy intake between the 15% and 25% protein diets, which suggests that increasing protein in the diet above a certain amount won't necessarily decrease the intake of other foods. Average perceived hunger levels across the day didn't really differ between the diets, but on the fourth day, participants on the 10% protein diet reported significantly more hunger one or two hours after breakfast than those on the 25% protein diet. So what do these results mean in the context of the protein leverage hypothesis? Well, the researchers are keen to point out that this is only a small study. There were 22 people involved in the analysis. Alone, it doesn't prove that PLH is responsible for the increased levels of obesity in society. But they point out that along with other larger studies and the fact that protein intake has indeed decreased over the last 30 to 40 years, coinciding with the rise in obesity, it does seem to support the hypothesis. They also mentioned that if the participants on the 10% protein diet continued to maintain their increased energy intake that they showed over the four-day trial without also increasing their activity level, they could expect to put on about a kilo every month, which isn't a great sign. That's a serious amount of weight to be putting on, isn't it? A kilo every month. Yeah, so just over four days, obviously it wouldn't have made much of a difference, but if you maintain that increased intake of energy, then uh, bad news. It is indeed. Well, speaking of the gut and the way that we digest things, an antibacterial protein secreted in the small intestine creates a tiny no-man's land between the wall of the intestine and the bacteria that live inside the gut. Breakdown of this physical buffer could actually be responsible for things like inflammatory bowel disease, so it's quite an important thing to pay attention to. The mammalian intestine is packed full of bacteria. There's around 100 trillion of them in there. And we know that many of them are key to keeping us healthy, performing important metabolic roles that our own cells can't. But we don't fully understand how the immune system tolerates the presence of such a large volume of of foreign cells. One way is to keep the bacteria physically isolated from the epithelial cells that line the digestive system. This creates a buffer zone that stops the immune system from reacting. Different components of the digestive tract have different strategies. The colon, for example, deploys a very dense layer of mucus on the surface, and that's too compact to allow bacteria to actually get through, and that creates a gap of around 50 micrometres between the bacteria and the epithelium. But that technique couldn't work in the small intestine, however, because the dense mucus would be too dense, it would block the nutrients that the small intestine actually absorbs. So, writing in Science, Laura Hooper and colleagues at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center at Dallas took sections of mouse intestine and used a technique called FISH, that's fluorescence in situ hybridization, to see where the bacteria were found. In the small intestine, they saw the same 50 micrometer gap as seen in the colon. But if the mice lacked a certain gene that's known to be involved in the innate immune response to bacteria, that gap vanished. This is despite the fact that overall levels of bacteria were actually the same. 
The gene responsible controls expression of several key antimicrobial proteins, including something called Reg3-gamma. And if you knock out Reg3-gamma in otherwise healthy mice, the researchers actually saw that this protein is definitely responsible for maintaining that 50 micrometer gap between the gut and the gut bugs. And in its absence, the adaptive immune system actually starts to respond, and it's that response that could then lead to things like inflammatory bowel disease. So there's still a lot to understand about the roles of the immune system and the epithelial cells in tolerating gut bacteria and how they achieve the balance that's required to develop and maintain a healthy commensal gut bug community. Reg3-gamma only controls certain groups of bacteria, so now the hunt is on to find the other proteins that are involved in keeping the bacteria at a distance. Also this week, a new technique to repair errors in DNA while leaving no trace has been reported in the journal Nature. The researchers have corrected an error that leads to an untreatable liver disease, and this technique could eventually lead to treatments for an extremely wide range of genetic illnesses. Joining us to explain more is Professor David Lomas from the Cambridge Institute for Medical Research. David, thank you ever so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Well, so first of all, what, what is this liver disease? What causes it and, and what are the symptoms? So alpha-1 trypsin is a protein that's produced from the liver and it bathes all the tissues of the body. The role of the protein is to protect the tissues against enzyme damage. There is a genetic mutation in this protein that's found in 1 in 25 of the population. So 1 in 2,000 are homozygous and it affects 30,000 people as homozygotes in the UK. So, so it's common. So this mutation causes the protein to misfold and accumulate within hepatocytes. That gives rise to liver disease, for which the only treatment is transplantation. Now, you imagine the lack of an important circulating protein means there's a lack of protection for the tissues, uh, the lung is most susceptible, and these people will develop early-onset emphysema, particularly if they smoke. So it's, it is a liver disease, but it also affects other systems. Correct. The primary abnormality is the protein misfolding in the liver, accumulating in the liver, and then the secondary effect is on the lung. And as you said, it's, it's quite common, so it's obviously a good target for us mm. to look at. So what have you done? What have you reported in, in this particular paper? So what we're trying to do is to think of a, an, a different way of producing liver cells that one day may take over from the damaged cells within patients. So we started with my patients and we took a skin biopsy and we isolated the fibroblasts. We then reprogrammed these fibroblasts so they became stem cells. Now imagine these stem cells still have the genetic mutation. So we corrected the genetic mutation, and to give you some idea of the magnitude of, of, of the problem, we changed one or two base pairs in six billion, left the rest of them unchanged, and then having made that correction, we have a normal healthy stem cell. We differentiated those to liver cells, which now work beautifully in the test tube, and then we put them in mice, and we showed that they were viable in mice and they produced the relevant liver proteins. So your technique is sort of a genetic scalpel, as it were. You're going in there with extreme precision to cut open the DNA, take out the errors, repair it, and not leave a genetic scar. Absolutely right. Molecular scalpel's a good description. <laughs> um, so what at the moment is stopping us from using this in humans? You've said that it seems to be very well received in mice. I understand you put them into mice with no immune system, so you don't get them rejected. Right. But quite often we've seen with stem cell research like this that the cells don't really integrate properly you might form tumors mm -hmm. there are all sorts of problems so what's standing in the way now so there's two issues to highlight the first is that the cells that we get from reprogramming look like liver cells and behave like liver cells but are an immature version of the liver cell and you can consider them as a fetal cell 
Um, that's a good way of looking at them. Now, they seem to function well in the mouse, they seem to produce the relevant proteins, and they seem to integrate. But we don't know whether long-term they can take over the function of a liver and they can repopulate and replace damaged liver cells. The second issue is that when you reprogram skin cells into stem cells and then differentiate them to hepatocytes, you collect point mutations in the genome. And from our sequencing, we found about two dozen point mutations. Now, we think, looking at the bioinformatics, that they're okay, that they're probably not going to have any effect. But you don't know for sure. The safety signal that we saw in these experiments is that when we put them in the mouse, six weeks later, they functioned normally. There didn't appear to be any malignant potential. But those two issues need to be addressed, particularly the last one, before we can move this through to clinical trials. Two dozen mutations doesn't actually sound like that many. I imagine there are far more just going from parent to child. Exactly. But the problem is that we, don't, we need to understand what they mean and what they do. And it's the context of the mutation that's, that's important. So they may be fine. This may not be a problem in, in real life. However, we need to think about it very carefully. And that's one thing that we need to address as we develop our clinical studies. I guess the reprogramming method is it's a very artificial situation in which these mutations are forming, so they could be forming in regions that would otherwise be very well protected. Correct. And it's just important to stress the safety side of these things. I mean, it's a nice story and we can go from skin, correct a genetic defect and come up with liver cells that appear to function beautifully. But if we're going to put them to patients, we need to develop strategies whereby we first of all do no harm. And the cells that we put in are not only viable and healthy, but they they won't have that malignant side effect. What do you see as the future for this sort of technique? If you can pick out one or two bases in an entire genome, then surely you could do this for pretty much any genetic disorder. That's correct. You can use this molecular scalpel for any genetic disease and you can correct the genome and leave the rest of the genome pristine. And that's the central part of the paper. So you can apply it to any genetic technique. It's then getting cells that are relevant and clean and viable and healthy that you can use in patients. So we're grappling with that. So having done this, we're trying to think, how can we put these through in patients in a safe way? And our next step, probably, because the grappling is still ongoing, but but our next step is probably to encapsulate the cells in some way in a polymer mix, an, an alginate, which means that we can put it in the human body in a test environment whereby it's safe. So if the cells do develop a malignant potential, they won't escape beyond the capsule. And then we can retrieve the cells at a later date and show that they they function normally and there's no malignant potential. And I think that stepping stone is quite important before we get through to clinical trials. And that, of course, would show you how they behave in context with all of the other chemical factors around that would be there in a real situation. Absolutely. And remember, of course, these have come from the individual that you're about to put them back into. So they have the same genome and theoretically there should be no requirement for immunosuppressive treatments because there should be no rejection. Excellent. Well, that's extremely promising work. Thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you. That's Professor David Lomas from the Cambridge Institute for Medical Research. And uh, you can find that work in the journal Nature this week. Sarah, what else do you have for us? I've got another sort of medical story, a story about the Black Death. Uh, Researchers have for the first time mapped the genome of Yersinia pestis, the bacterium that causes the Black Death. Uh, The Black Death was the plague between 1347 and 1351 that killed up to 30 million people, which was 50% of the population of Europe at the time. Now, this bacterium is still around today and it continues to cause cases of bubonic plague, which is the other name for the Black Death, although not with the same virulence or on the same scale that it did in medieval times. Why is this? No one knows for sure. 
One possibility is that the more ancient forms of the bacteria carried mutations or genetic changes that could account for the more aggressive behaviour. To find out whether this was the case, McMaster University scientist Kirsten Boss, together with her colleagues in Germany, the US and Canada, looked at bacterial DNA extracted from teeth collected from four victims buried in a 1348 plague pit in East Smithfield in London. And uh, the DNA that they recovered from the teeth was in pretty poor condition, having been broken up by the passage of time into many tiny fragments. But by making millions of copies of the individual pieces and then using a computer to work out which bits overlapped with each other, they were able to reassemble for the first time the complete genome of the chromosome of the 14th century strain of the bacterium. The big surprise for the scientists when they compared the Black Death strain with its milder, currently circulating counterparts was how few differences there were between them. The results from the London victims show that by the time of the Black Death, the plague bacterium had only recently emerged in the human population, perhaps only a century or so before the Black Death occurred. In fact, owing to the close relationship with strains from across the world, the scientists think that the spread of the Black Death Plague was the first main dissemination of this bacterium globally. So if the Black Death strain of the bacterium is so similar to the Yersinia pestis isolated from plague sufferers today, why was the outbreak in the Middle Ages so devastating? At the moment, the scientists don't really know. It's clear that the bacterium is essentially the same, so something else must have accounted for the increased past virulence. It may be that those who died historically had a genetic vulnerability to the bug. Social or economic factors may have played a role as well. Perhaps a second different infection was co-circulating alongside the plague, which boosted its transmission and virulence. We don't know. Maybe perhaps even climate uh, or even the behaviour of the vector, the fleas on the rats that spread the disease, had a role to play. These are the questions that are going to be needing to be addressed next. Thank you, Sarah. Now, children are more likely to seek assistance in a task than chimpanzees are, suggesting that motivation to work together could be part of what makes us human. Writing in the journal Current Biology, Michael Tomasello from the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig in Germany and his colleagues wanted to test the idea that humans are more motivated to collaborate than our closest relatives, the chimpanzees. Now, both children and chimps are known to collaborate. They recognise when they need help and they actively recruit a partner to assist them. Chimps are also known to choose a good collaborator over a bad collaborator, so they clearly possess the cognitive abilities to understand the need for and the problems with sharing a task. However, chimps do generally keep to themselves. They live in groups, but most of their foraging is done individually. Groups of males only rarely work together in order to hunt. Now, this gave rise to a hypothesis that motivation, not ability, was what was driving human collaboration. To test this, the researchers devised an experiment where the subject, be it a chimp or a child, could pull a board full of food into their room in one of two ways, either on their own by pulling two ropes simultaneously or collaboratively by pulling a rope in their room while a partner pulled the other next door. The partners were familiar animals, so from the same social group for the chimps and from the same kindergarten for the children. Both methods resulted in the same amount of food for both test subject and their partner, so that meant that there was no advantage to one technique over the other. 
Human children chose to collaborate around 78% of the time, significantly more often than did the chimpanzees, at only 58%. This shows that the children chose to collaborate far more than would be expected by chance alone, while the chimps basically chose at random. So why would children prefer to collaborate? One hypothesis is that we have an innate drive for fairness. Now, given that the partner child was given the same amount of food, regardless of whether they cooperated or not, it could be seen that they are getting a free ride from the main child's efforts. So to test this, the researchers devised a second test where the partner child only received a food reward in secret and the main child never knew. Despite this, the children still chose the collaborative board significantly more often than by chance alone. Now, this shows us that children are more motivated to collaborate than chimps, and the authors speculate that collaborative foraging may well have been a key behavioural domain in which humans evolved a suite of new proximate mechanisms, both cognitive and motivational, for collaborating with others in ways that eventually led to the many complexities of human societies. Well, we've actually had quite a relevant email this week from someone who obviously wants to remain anonymous, and you'll see why. They say that the other day I was running in a forest in Tokai in Cape Town that has a few resident troops of baboons and usually they leave you well alone. The other day I had to go and found a quiet place amongst some trees. I suddenly heard a massive bark behind me and within a minute these baboons were bearing down on me aggressively. Every time I stopped and tried to go around they resumed their attack. Clearly, human faeces is very similar to baboon and they thought I was infiltrating their area. Well, thank you for that email, anonymous person, and I can see why you might want to remain. I think I can understand the baboon's response. I know if some jogger came past and decided to relieve themselves in my garden, I wouldn't be best pleased. That would be a response of of anyone, really. (laughs) And now, with a roundup of some of the other significant science this week, here's Mirisantha Lingam with this week's Naked Scientist Newsflash. Vitamin D supplements could be used to fight tuberculosis in at risk populations. Darker skinned communities are known to suffer from deficiencies in vitamin D when living in northern climates, and as a result, are also more susceptible to infections such as TB. By comparing groups of African Americans and Caucasians, UCLA's Robert Modlin discovered the cause of this link to be a change in the immune system's ability to attack the TB bacteria, a change controlled by vitamin D. You go to the doctor and have your vitamin D measured, that's the precursor for them, and that gets into the infected cell, and if that cell becomes activated, it gets converted to the active form, triggering antimicrobial peptides that kill the bacteria. What happens if your precursor level is low you can't achieve high enough levels to trigger this antimicrobial mechanism, and then you can't kill the bacteria. There probably is a correlation with the uh, level of vitamin D in your blood and your risk of getting TB. A brain-computer interface is enabling patients with spinal cord injury to move a prosthetic arm using their thoughts alone. The technology, currently being trialled at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, uses electrodes to collect and decode signals in the brain directing an object, in this case a prosthetic, to move. A feedback loop is then created, with the patient seeing the movement they generate and correcting for any discrepancies. Andrew Schwartz is leading the trial. There's been a big effort sponsored by the Defense Department and the U.S. government and National Institutes of Health to develop a, a very nice prosthetic device. So this device has 
many of the capabilities of our own arm and hand. So we'd like to be able to get a, a rich enough control signal that we can operate that device. We'd like the subject to be able not only to reach out and grab things, but to actually do dexterous tasks that require coordinated finger movements. Eating your greens really does keep you healthy by keeping infections at bay. Working with mice, Mark Veldhoon from the Babraham Institute found that reducing the amounts of cruciferous vegetables, such as cabbage and broccoli, in the diet over two weeks caused a 70 to 80% decrease in intraepithelial lymphocytes, or IELs. These are white blood cells found in the skin and the gut and are the first line of defence in the body. If you have reduced numbers of IELs, your intestine is much more prone to injury. Um, you're much more prone to inflammation when the IL numbers are reduced. The lymphocytes express a receptor which is called the real hydrocarbon receptor to very high levels. And the compound found in green vegetables, which is called indole-3-carbinol, creates a ligand which has very high affinity for this receptor. It's a very direct effect. If they don't have the component or they don't have the receptor, then they don't survive. With reduced levels of these cells, the mice had fewer antimicrobial proteins and increased susceptibility to injury, as these lymphocytes are needed for wound repair, in addition to their role as a barrier from the outside world. And finally, the twisting movements of muscles have been mimicked using bundles of carbon nanotubes. The strong but stiff characteristics of these nanotubes have been manipulated by Ray Borgman and colleagues from the University of Texas at Dallas to create flexible yarns that twist rapidly when dipped into an electrolyte and injected with charge. They then untwist when the charge is removed. This rotation simulates that seen in elephant trunks, squid tentacles and human tongues. Right now people are imagining micron-scale robots that uh, do self-repair in the human body. But in order to have such micro-robots, perhaps in swarms, you need motors. And our technology can provide a type of motor. Bacteria in nature use torsion to propel themselves. Our artificial muscles provide this type of torsion. Mira Senthalingam with this week's Naked Scientist's News Flash. If you'd like to follow up on any of the stories you've heard so far, transcripts and references will be available at thenakedscientists.com slash news. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Ben Valsler and with Sarah Castor-Perry. This week we're exploring plant pathology and pretty soon we'll find out how modelling disease can help to treat and prevent crop diseases. But first, nettles, brambles, ivy and bracken can be a bit of a problem if you're a gardener, not just because they sting, scratch and tangle, but because they can actually harm the diversity of woodlands. New research into the so-called thug species, led by Rob Mars from the University of Liverpool, suggests that they can even be more damaging than invasive plant species. Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham joined Rob for a walk through some woodland on the outskirts of Chester to find out more. Well, the two here are obvious. There's bramble, which is you know everyone likes in the autumn because it provides good berries, and nettles, of course, which is a well-known one which um, stings people. The issue with both of those is that they grow well, they produce a lot of biomass above ground, 
and therefore they can shade out our less competitive species. One of the other issues is, of course, that we are actually looking at this against a changing baseline of atmospheric nitrogen depositions. Over the last 50 years or so, there has been an increase in nitrogen, and this has actually provided a signal of change in species composition of the vegetation of Great Britain. And we tend to be finding species that respond to fertiliser out-competing other species. So there are more of these sort of... Th- don't want to get too close, actually, because they're nettles right next to us. More of these, these thug species, like the nettles and the brambles. And actually, look at, through here, if you just crouch down, it's dense yeah. with those, nothing much yeah. else there. Yeah. Well, that's true. And what's actually happening in the wider countryside, as opposed to just in woodlands, is we're, we're seeing a process of biotic homogenisation where, if you like, the many species that we used to have are being reduced and we tend to be getting more species with the same traits, those that can grow fast, capture nutrients and outcompete other species. And that's across well, more or less all habitats we're seeing this trend. I'm intrigued about this idea of them being a, a thug. I mean, they're not actively pushing other species out, are they? They're not sort of you know, barging them out of the way. Well, we don't know that. No, I mean, we didn't come up with the name Thugger, and we just thought it was quite an interesting way to describe them. You could just call them dominant or over-dominant plants, which I think is probably my preferred wordage. OK, for us, walking through this, this woodland, we can walk down the central path. There are a few smaller paths off. We can't get through this area of the, the brambles and the nettles. It's just too dense. So it's, it's a pain for us. It doesn't look quite so nice. But what's really the big deal with these sort of plants? Well, I don't think whether they're in the way for humans or not is, is relevant. I'm, I'm quite happy to wander through here, uh, or at least I get my students to do it, um, because, you know, that's just how woodlands are. These species are there, particularly bramble, they're not particularly unnettled, they're not particularly pleasant to work with, but if you do need to walk through them, you just need to walk through them. The issue really is that they have the potential to displace other species, and that's where, I guess, our worry is. I mean, you could argue that it's perfectly reasonable to just allow this process to happen. It's sort of natural, although we are probably enhancing it with the um, eutrophication that's coming from the atmosphere. So more, more nutrients more around. Nutrients, yeah. But also, here we have a lot of dog walkers. You know, and although they pick up their, uh, the faeces, the dogs are still urinating and will be adding nutrients to the vegetation, and that's enhancing the growth of these particular plants. Actually, we've seen quite a few dog walkers here. Is that why if you walk along this this path, there are the nettles and these other thug species either side of the path, do you think? Do you think that actually has an impact? Well, that's one explanation. I mean, there's also possibly a bit more light in those areas, but certainly it certainly will, or should at least, enhance their growth, yes. So if you look at the bigger picture here, this means that our woodlands are becoming less diverse. Yes, and certainly if these species increase, then you would expect to see a reduction in woodland species diversity. On the other hand, if they reduce in the future, there's a potential for the diversity to increase. So what do we do about this? Do do we do anything? Is is this just a a natural process or a semi-natural process? Just let woodlands get on with it? Well, one can do that. Um, The point that worries me is that uh, if we lose too much of the diversity then we will have a a much harder job to re-establish it uh, in the future. 
That was Rob Mars from the University of Liverpool talking to Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham. And you can find out more Planet Earth online resources via our website. Just go to thenakedscientist.com forward slash planet earth. It's estimated that the worldwide cost of crop disease is at least $200 billion and that 10% of crop yield per year is lost to disease. For financial and humanitarian reasons, therefore, it's obviously very important to find ways to control plant diseases. And to help us do that, we need to understand how diseases develop and spread. And for that, we rely partly on mathematical models. We're joined by Chris Gilligan, Professor of Mathematical Biology in the Department of Plant Sciences at Cambridge. University. Chris, thank you ever so much for joining us. Um, just to get a, a, a handle on this, what is the extent of plant disease, say, compared with, with human disease? Well, let me answer that by uh, recounting. I've just been to Kenya to have a look at uh, what's happening there. And there we have a number of diseases which are really very, very serious. So take, for example, wheat, which is a staple crop throughout the world. There is a very serious new disease that is developing, a new strain of a disease that is developing on wheat within Africa and is now spreading potentially worldwide. All of wheat worldwide is potentially susceptible to this particular disease. I also looked at cassava diseases, where cassava is a a very staple uh, part of diets, large parts of Africa also in South America and elsewhere. And two virus diseases are really threatening the yield of this important staple crop. So they're extremely threatening. And, of course, this could be a worldwide problem, especially because there are lots of crops where we have sold the best cultivar all over the world. And so genetically, there's not actually as much variety from one country to the next as as you would expect if they had naturally spread. That's right. So the job of plant breeders is, of course, to produce new varieties which are high-yielding and also which are resistant to pests and diseases. Now, if you have something that is working successfully... Needless to say, everybody wants to have that. And so there is a very strong driver when you do have a successful variety for it to be very widely grown. And that's exactly what has happened with weed stem rust, the disease that I introduced briefly before, which has been controlled successfully for more than 30 years by essentially those same varieties. But now with a new strain arising, essentially that strain is confronted with genetic homogeneity and so can spread very rapidly. I've always heard that Cavendish bananas, the popular bright yellow banana that we get, they're all essentially clones as well. That's right. And that's a a very unstable situation in which to be in. And modern plant breeding and modern epidemiology is actually looking very carefully at how we can increase the heterogeneity, that is the variability in the types of cultivars that we're growing. And then the real challenge is to work out what What's the spatial distribution that one should have within a country and then thinking worldwide in order to minimise the risk of disease spreading? So how do we go about modelling these diseases and what scales can we look at? Can we do a, a worldwide model or do we have to keep to something a bit more regional? Needless to say, we can uh, do both. But in essence, what one does is look at the particular region that one is interested in, which may be a country, and then look at um, is there spread from country to country 
that's known then as spread in a metapopulation, where a metapopulation is essentially two subpopulations with epidemics occurring in each country and then some reinforcement of movement of what we call an oculum, which is the, uh, the material that gives rise uh, to the disease from one country to another. The challenge in deciding how we can set about using mathematical models to predict, first of all, the spread of disease, and secondly, then to use the models to optimize strategies for control, is really you're looking at a, a very messy system. You don't have very much information as the new pathogen uh, arises. And so what you're attempting to do is to get the signature for the spread of the epidemic. That's the signature of how does it spread over space and over time. To do that, we uh, produce some maps. Well, the maps are usually incomplete. And then use uh, some very statistical, sometimes complicated statistical methods uh, to identify really who infected whom or what infected what. And from that, one can then identify some of the key parameters that are influential in the spread of the disease. I assume you can't just look at the species you're looking at, both species of pathogen, species of plant, and geography. You also have to look at other things like invasive species, reservoirs, the way that humans move plants around. There must be an awful lot to, to try and fit into those models. So the, uh, the art of modelling is really to identify what is essential and to ignore what is not essential. So as soon as I talk to an expert uh, who works on a particular disease or a particular crop, they can easily fill three pages of notes as to what ought to be important. As a modeler, I am not going to try and model three pages of notes worth of um, complicated potential interactions. What I do is identify what are the key processes, and I indicated that uh, spread is very important, the transmissibility, so when the pathogen, which is the organism that causes disease, when that lands on a host, what's the chance that it can infect the host? You mentioned that there are different forms of spread, there may be hundreds of different forms of spread, but the beauty of approaching this from a statistical and a mathematical perspective is that these can be usually separated into one or two scales. So once we have our models, once you've put all of this together, how can you actually use that to, to help predict or control or put a activities into place that will stop the spread of disease. So having got the model, we've identified what we believe is responsible for uh, the spread of the disease, and that enables us then to predict our future spread. Now, there are two directions in which one can go. The first is to produce risk maps, which is saying where is the disease most likely to spread to. Secondly, one may also produce what we call hazard maps, where a hazard map is saying if the disease were to enter a particular area, so for example, uh, the, the wheat example that I gave you before has now spread from Afri Africa through into Iran. What if it were to get into the Indian subcontinent? Where would it spread most rapidly? And that's the function of a hazard map. Having got those risk and hazard maps, the next thing to do is to say, let's think about what methods we have for control, which could be the deployment of chemicals, but there won't be enough chemicals to apply everywhere. It could be uh, the development of new resistant varieties, and again, there won't be enough to apply everywhere initially. 
how do we optimize where we place those so that we minimize the risks of spread of the disease? And that's where the modeling helps because you can run many of these what-if scenarios often taking, well, always indeed, taking account of uncertainties because we don't know everything about the pathogen. So these models should help us to make the intelligent decisions about what to do and about what to do with with limited resources. Thank you ever so much. That's Professor Chris Gilligan from Cambridge University, and he will be with us for the rest of the show. So if you have any questions for him, then do please get in touch. You can tweet at Naked Scientists right on our Facebook page. I can see there's already lots coming in on our Facebook page today. That's at facebook.com slash The Naked Scientists, or drop us an email. That's to chris at thenakedscientists.com. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. Now, everything is getting very autumnal outside now, not just the the cold weather that's come upon us, but you may have noticed that some horse chestnut trees went brown a long time before the other trees started to. This is called late summer browning and is caused by the caterpillars of a leaf mining moth. First noticed in Macedonia in 1984, the leaf miner has been making its way across Europe. Emily Seward took me to find some caterpillars and see how they do so much damage. So we're just walking along by the river here in Cambridge now and you can see it's really dramatic. The trees that are healthy are still green. The other trees, all the brown trees are the horse chestnuts, and they're really looking very unhealthy. Yeah, they're looking pretty bad. I mean, we're, you know, 100 metres away from these trees, and you can already see that they just look dead. It looks like winter's surrounded just those leaves and just those trees and left all the other ones intact. So if we go a little bit closer, though, you can see that it's not a normal autumnal change. It's not the characteristic browning that you associate with late October, November, that sort of time. It's really turning brown in little patches and these little patches are caused by leaf miner larvae and these are little larvae of moths that have burrowed in between the two layers of the skin of the leaf and have eaten away at the leaf and are causing these brown lesions there. Wow, they look even worse close up. There's these kind of patchwork little spots and patches all over the leaves some of them going a bit yellow and then the rest of it goes a bit brown and then some of them that have been really badly affected I suppose once the leaf miners have had their fill they have actually just died because all of the inside of the leaf has just been eaten out I don't really want to go any closer in case I get hit hit on the head by a conker I know we're being attacked by conkers they're falling down on us as we speak but they're not looking too bad they're a little bit beaten up but in general they're quite a normal size so the leaf miners aren't killing the trees. They're just reducing the amount of leaf area, so the amount of area that the plants can have to convert sunlight into sugar. And so although it's not killing them, it is meaning they have less resources, they're more likely to get diseased from other things, and they have less energy to put into making the conkers. Should we see if we can yeah, let's find see. leaves? So Sarah's just pulling off a couple of leaves now. First of all, just hold it up against the light and you can actually see the larvae inside. You can see the outline of them just wriggling around in there. See, look here, that one. And it's just moving around. Oh, you, can. you can. see it. It's like a little worm yes. in between so the two like layers a, of the leaf. So it's like a little segmented caterpillar, obviously, because moths are related to butterflies, but it's a, mm, about half a centimetre long, maybe, and sort of a beigey colour with little black lines on it. 
So if you, you peel back that upper layer there... I'm yeah, not sure I really want to peel it back well, and see it closer. Yeah. So Sarah's just using her nails to take off just the upper layer. And you can see within the leaf itself is this larvae and it's wriggling around and there are lots of them. Each leaf has 10, 15 little larvae in it in these pockets protected inside. So it's kind of like between the top and bottom layers of the leaf it's eating out the inside so it's got a nice little protective coating on the top and a nice little protective coating on the bottom so it's safe from predators from birds that might want to come and eat them that sort of thing and it's got an easy food supply it can just eat its way through the leaf and you can see it's sort of contained within the rib regions it will cocoon and turn into a different developmental stage and over winter like that ready next spring to come out and eat more leaves and do we think perhaps things like the harshness of the winter affects how much we see of the damage to the horse chestnuts? These are actually very, very resistant to the cold, so they can survive really freezing temperatures. So that's not going to affect them. It's very difficult to get rid of them, so they weren't seen a couple of years ago. 2002, I think, was the first sighting, and now they're everywhere. If you just look, you can see yeah. every tree that's brown at the moment is a horse chestnut tree. Is there any hope of the future that we might be able to find some kind of treatment or some way of killing off the moths so they can't lay their eggs so that they develop into the leaf miners and eat more to horse chestnuts? Well, it's a really good question and people are working on it at the moment. But like you said, it's a little bit bleak. They're hidden from their natural predators like blue tits and that sort of thing. And though you can spray the trees with chemicals, that's also going to kill all the other insects. And it's such a widespread problem that people are finding it very difficult to take responsibility and actually clear up the problem what you can do if you're worried about your horse chestnut in your garden is you can collect up all of the leaves and burn them in a bonfire because that will kill the pupae that are overwintering and hopefully reduce the number of moths the next year but it's really a much more wide-scale problem it's taken 10 years for people to really start noticing how widespread a problem it is now and so maybe in another 10 years we'll have found a solution and we'll be back to having the lush trees all year round until winter takes its natural toll that was Emily Seward introducing me to the horse chestnut leaf miner caterpillar and they are fairly easy to find and pretty gross. And if you'd like to see what they look like, these gross caterpillars, then we've produced a special video podcast. To find that, just go to thenakedscientist.com slash specials and it'll be there on the page. So insects can be a real problem to plants, but they can also surprisingly be their salvation. Some plants actually recruit insects in to keep other pests away. And we're joined now by Professor John Pickett from Rothamsted Research. Thanks so much for joining us. Hello. So how do plants do this and why on earth would they want to attract insects to them? Well, uh, all insects are attacked by other insects, and so if you're a plant being attacked by one set, then uh, it's a neat trick to bring in insects that will attack your attacker, and that's just what the plants do. So when the, uh, the herbivorous insect starts to bite into the plant, chemical signals are produced which bring in predators, but more particularly parasitic wasps, which we call parasitoids because they actually kill their host. And they can do a really spectacular job normally, uh, but they do it rather late. And so if it's a crop you're wanting to protect, you've got to bring them in earlier. And 
Are the plants able to be very specific to bring in just the right kind of parasitoid wasp or is it just kind of sending out a, a distress signal and it calls all sorts of things? Yes, at it? the moment, uh, quite a lot of uh, pests attract specific parasitic wasps. Uh, so the, the P. aphid attracts in a particular wasp adapted entirely to feeding on that particular aphid. And in fact, the, uh, the wasp can find the plant that is being fed on by just its host uh, using particular chemicals associated with that interaction. Unfortunately, uh, your uh, horse chestnut leaf miner, that's actually uh, attracting in quite a range of wasps. There's nothing really specific yet. We hope we'll get a very specific wasp for it eventually. And is it just insects that the plants look to for help? Do they recruit anything else like bacteria or fungi? Yes, it's a more sophisticated process and less uh, understood at the moment, but we think it's probably true of other antagonistic organisms. Uh, These are multitrophic interactions and can get very complicated. But uh, I think we should stress that the parasitic wasps, they can do a spectacular job. They do it naturally, but as I said, they do it rather late in the day, and that's where some science and technology comes in to try and improve the way that they, uh, they find their pests, our pests and their food. So what sort of timescale are we looking at here? Are we looking at hours, days? Yes, as soon as the plant is fed upon by the uh, herbivore, the plant starts to go into various defensive uh, modes. And it can, in fact, stop the herbivore itself. But it's those processes starting to take place as soon as the insect has bitten or has punctured the, uh, the, the, the cell sap system. As soon as that process starts to operate, then the signals start to come out and these can be picked up by the parasitic wasps on their antennae, in fact, and then they can start to forage for the, uh, the, the host. Does it affect just the plant that's being munched on or does it affect the other plants around it? Well, very recently, we and various labs around the world have found out that not only is the plant signalling to this sort of higher trophic level for help, but it's also signalling to other plants, particularly if the, of the same species. And so it can switch on defence in adjacent plants prior to them being attacked. And you mentioned that science comes into this to sort of bring down the time of response. How can we take advantage of this response in plants? Well, we can try and breed it in. In fact, very recently we've uh, published uh, a paper showing that the open pollinating varieties of maize, the land races of maize, uh, can do this kind of job really very well. They can even do it when the eggs are laid on their leaves by stem borer moths. And the, the eggs cause the plant to send out signals that attract in not just egg parasites, but larval parasites. They're really smart, these plants are. Now, we can breed that in, but we need to know a little bit more about the chemistry, which we're working on at the moment, so that we can give a very simple uh, protocol for African maize breeders to use in uh, choosing this trait. We also hope it'll be useful back in hybrid maize, which seems to have lost this ability altogether, uh, to make better hybrid maize uh, varieties. So is this something that we're already seeing going into production? Are we seeing trials of this sort of modified? Well, we already use plants that can do it, but we haven't done any improvement of this using breeding. What we're doing at the moment in our own agricultural research programmes is to try and use GM to give the parasites a better cue for coming in and looking for aphids in this case. So next year we've just received a field trial clearance to do some trials uh, after very, very successful laboratory results on modifying a wheat plant to produce the aphid alarm pheromone. Now this is a pheromone, which is a signal, 
for members of the same species, which causes aphids to disperse when they're attacked. But it also attracts in these parasitic wasps. And so we will actually have in experimental plots uh, with full uh, uh, GM containment next year uh, wheat that can produce not only a frightening signal for aphids, but one which will attract in uh, ladybirds as predators, but more particularly parasitic wasps to attack the aphids as they try to build up their population and damage the crop. Well, it sounds like it could be really potentially good news for agriculture in the future. Thanks, John. That's Professor John Pickett from Rothamsted Research. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Ben Valser, with Sarah Castor-Perry and with our guests Chris Gilligan and John Pickett. Very soon, Diana O'Carroll will find out what happens to a black hole as it loses weight, and that will be in our question of the week. But first, Chris, we've had a question from Jen in Cambridge. She says that the modelling of plant disease sounds incredible, but as well as modelling current diseases, are we modelling potential pathogen mutation in order to try and stay ahead of the curve? That's a very important question. I, I hope Jan too means that it's credible as well as incredible the work that, <laughs> that goes on. It becomes very important to think if you are going to introduce genetic resistance or chemical form of resistance um, to a pest or a pathogen, what's the pest or pathogen going to do? There will be strong selection pressure on the pest or pathogen to overcome that form of resistance or that form of chemical control. And that's exactly what we are including in our models, the evolutionary changes. And so then trying to predict what is the pathogen going to do next and get ahead. And uh, Jen in Cambridge also said that while she was on safari in Africa, she saw plants that are favoured by elephants, but they can only eat for 15 minutes before the plants and all those around it produce tannins to make themselves inedible. Is this a, a fairly common response? John, that's probably one for you. Oh, yes. Uh, plants can do all kinds of things to defend themselves. Uh, of course, uh, some plants produce alkaloids as, uh, as toxicants, but uh, clever animals like the elephants, and I believe also like ourselves, uh, can actually take some enjoyment or entertainment from such plants. <laughs> so the elephants can become a little dangerous when they've taken some of these alkaloids. But does that also mean that you get a sort of patterning in a forest where you have the plant that was attacked, that then creates a ring of protected plant around it and then you have to go a few hundred metres before you get the next plant that gets attacked. Oh yes and if you bear in mind the fact that when the plants are being attacked they can actually signal to plants next to them then you get a very very complex situation building up and indeed uh, Charles Darwin in fact noticed that when plants were living in very complicated ecosystems they produced generally more biomass than when we grow our traditional monocultures of a row of lettuce or a field of wheat. <laughs> Chris is that something again that you could model the way that these responses lead to patterning of vulnerable plants. Absolutely, and indeed we're looking at uh, the spread of disease in natural systems at present. So this is away from crops where there is a disease, sudden oak death, which is threatening very large parts of um, California and is also uh, causing a lot of damage in the UK. There we're looking at um, what is the heterogeneity. Once again, that word comes out very often in the, the natural vegetation and how does the invasion by that pathogen actually change that too. I've got a, another question here, probably for you, John. Speaking of plants producing chemicals, this is a question from David Cooper. He <clears> says, <throat> do plants that go undergo stress produce protective substances that are actually beneficial to the human diet? 
Well, it's a little bit difficult to answer that question uh, directly, but certainly methyl salicylate, which is the chemical in oil of wintergreen, and which was, of course, related to the chemistry from which we got aspirin, an extremely useful uh, chemical for most of us when we have a headache and so on, uh, actually is produced under stress. So the plants are indeed producing something that is nominally useful to us. But don't forget that this is being done in an evolutionary context. Uh, And if the plant, when it's attacked by us with our hoe or with our scythe or with our herbicide could do something to stop us actually making this uh, deployment then of course it would be doing very very well and in fact plants will be seen by so-called perhaps epigenetic effects uh, to avoid the blades of our lawnmower (laughs) we've also had a question from Theo gibson and also from jasper Ackroyd. it's obviously a popular one and they would like to know can we actually catch a disease from a diseased plant chris what do you think well, I think, first of all, most people should relax that you know, they're very unlikely to catch uh, diseases from plants because they will be immune to the sorts of pathogens that attack plants. But there are some exceptions. And one example would be um, aspergillus, uh, which is a mold that grows on grain. And that can be a very serious problem if people inhale the spores. And this leads to uh, farmer's lung, I think it's called, where you That's get right, these yes. d- developments yes. in the lung. Very much like asbestosis, you end up with a serious lung disorder. Correct. Well, I've got uh, another question here from Mike Garrard, and he's written in uh, about cherry plants, and he says that uh, he's bought a cherry plant, and it's clearly a graft onto a root, so he doesn't know the species. Um, But he's seen ants climbing up the tree, and they head to a leaf stem at the base, and they they pat the little leaf buds for a while with their antennae, and then they sort of move off to another leaf and then do the same, and then head back down the plant. And he says that the buds don't seem to... To produce any fragrance or any fluid or anything and they look sort of waxy and he was just wondering what the ants are doing there and how the plant is attracting them well ants of course are looking for food particularly sugar uh, though it would be nice to know which species and a little bit more about the botany. But uh, in general terms, some plants, in fact, will provide, uh, not just from the flowers, but they will provide false nectaries, which uh, give the ants some food, and in return the ants can uh, stop other insects attacking the plant. Uh, also, if there's any leakage of sap from the system, whether you can see it or not, ants might be able to find that. If there are sucking insects feeding cryptically on the plants, you can't really see them, They may be producing honeydew. Uh, Aphids do this because they're simply looking for a bit of nitrogen. There isn't much in the sap that they feed on, and so their faeces is almost neat sugar, the honeydew. And, of course, ants then come along. The ants look after the aphids in that particular case. But by and large, the ants will look after the plant if it's offering them some reward. So you get ants that actually cultivate and encourage aphids. Surely that's a huge problem for gardeners because you end up with an excess of aphids. Well, that's certainly true but uh, of course the uh, the ant is in the business of keeping the aphid uh, so that he can milk it. It doesn't really want it to destroy the plant, otherwise there won't be any uh, sugar coming in from photosynthesis. But some ants, in fact, have a very close relationship with plants and there are Cecropia trees in uh, Central America which uh, provide the ants with a sort of living uh, accommodation within the tree and when you pull a branch down, they all come out and attack you. So these Azteca ants, uh, that's the genus, uh, they've really adapted their life to fit in exactly with the plant and it's a great benefit to that plant.
John, another question for you from Lenore in Florida. Is there anything that we can do about leaf miners in tomato plants this time? I don't know whether these are the same sort of species that we see in the horse chestnuts, or are they a different...? Well, there are different kinds of insects that are called leaf miners, but um, the family that uh, you were speaking about earlier with the horse chestnut leaf miner, Cameraria oridella, uh, that family is the Gracilariidae, and it may well be that that's the family that we have in, uh, in Florida. Uh, but the treatment is going to be the same, whether it's uh, a small fly larva or whether it's a, a moth larva that's doing the mining, uh, and that is to use... Uh, one of the newer insecticides, particularly imidacloprid. So you need to go to the hardware store or the garden centre and find, in the small print, uh, the active ingredient imidacloprid, and then that's the one to spray onto your plants. The reason I'm saying this particular chemical is it has some uh, ability to penetrate the leaf and get through into where the leaf miner is. But there's no organic solution it's it's definitely a case of using a pesticide well i think you can pull the leaves off that have got the mines and burn them uh, or eat them uh, but i know i'd prefer the burning i think really for tomato leaves not so good to eating i, I think uh, cultivational methods probably don't work too well uh, at the moment, we'd very much like to attract in parasitic wasps to attack the leaf miners because they can actually get into the mine and attack the leaf miners very efficiently. But um, we don't really have highly specialised parasites for some of these leaf miners. But in Florida, they may have. And so it would be worth consulting people about encouraging populations. Perhaps you could grow some tomatoes that you might wish to sacrifice to keep a good population of the parasites to attack the leaf miners in your main stand. Do you think we would ever see a situation where we use something like the parasitoid wasp attracting pheromones in some kind of spray that you could spray on your plants at home? We have the, uh, the pheromone uh, for the uh, horse chestnut leaf miner. Uh, in fact, I can tell you what it is chemically if you'd really like to know. EZ810 Tetra Deca Dienal. And this well, wonderful compound, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this wonderful compound uh, will attract uh, males because it's actually produced by the female to attract males for mating. Uh, and so you could mess up the way they find each other for that purpose. Uh, but you'd need to do it over a fairly big area of where the horse chestnut trees were. So you'd need to have uh, this disruption of mating uh, in a fairly extensive way. Otherwise, you'd have to use one of these chemicals, which uh, probably are not licensed for commercial use on such ornamental trees as horse chestnut, even though they're available for home and garden use, uh, registered for that purpose specifically on, uh, on vegetable plants. Moving away from sort of invasive animals and bacteria that cause problems, uh, Rob Barringer has written in to ask if plants can actually get cancer. And of course, it's a very different type of disease. Chris, what do you think? Best way, I think, to answer this is to try and read uh, what's behind that question. And I believe that it's getting at two aspects of, of disease. One is proliferation of cells. So do you get galls or some uh, such forming? And indeed, you do. There's agrobacterium tumor fasciens, which creates rather large galls, very common on apple trees. And secondly, do you get spread of the disease through the entire plant? And indeed, many uh, diseases, and particularly viral diseases, become, as we say, systemic and spread through the plant. But, uh, of course, this is very different from uh, the mechanisms of cancer. So it's not quite as clear-cut. There are clearly similar problems, but 
they're not really directly comparable to the system we see in humans, for example. That's correct. We have also had this one might be a little bit off the wall, but I'll open this up to both of you. Um, Bionny Mills on Twitter has asked us if we can develop plants that will survive on Mars. Now, apparently this was suggested by Carl Sagan in the Cosmos programme. What do you think? Can we do it? Well, of course, terraforming on Mars would be a great idea. I mean, the popular thought is that it's a really dead planet and really doesn't offer much for organisms. I did advance once an idea that we might dump activated sludge uh, onto Mars. This has got all kinds of organisms in it, extremophiles in the extreme, in fact, and so some of them might find a niche there. But uh, in terms of life as we know it, you'd need various support systems already there, like water in a plenty supply and while we're still debating where that is on Mars and whether there is sufficient uh, I don't think we can advance this but certainly if you did send some extremophiles they might be able to survive if there are uh, some of the basic uh, necessities Uh, and that could of course uh, evolve into organisms that could make it more uh, habitable but I think the fact is that it really is dead as it would appear to us at the moment and in terms of whether it could support the kind of life as we know it. One additional thought that I have in in listening to what uh, John has said there is, of course, there are big challenges still to think about um, how we can get plants to grow in other areas on Earth, particularly where drought is a major problem and the desert regions. So there is plenty to be done down here as well as thinking about up there. Yes, I think that's a really very good point that uh, Chris makes. In fact, we've just started an EU-funded programme in which we will find uh, plants uh, growing in arid regions in Africa, uh, which will uh, then allow us to accept aridification in regions where we're already seeing some problems with increased drought. Uh, These will be plants that are used as companion plants to protect uh, the main crops from pests and disease. We're even involving local people in this with citizen botanists looking around for the kind of plants that might be useful. It must be really useful to have salt-tolerant plants as well, because obviously supply of fresh water is a problem in large parts of the world. Yes, and quite a lot of work is being done, of course, in transferring the traits from already salt-tolerant plants to plants that we might more easily recognise as crop plants. Uh, And that will involve various new technologies, of course, including GM. Well, I've got uh, another question, probably for you, Chris. Uh, This is from Laura Avanzo-Leek, and uh, she says, Is it true that when an orchid gets a virus, I should destroy the plant to prevent infection of other plants? The short answer to this is almost certainly yes. We don't know what the particular virus is that the questioner is asking about, but essentially we're thinking about a pathogen that can spread from plant to plant and therefore if you do have an infected plant the very sensible thing to do is to remove it. Well now moving away from plants we're going to be finding out what happens to a black hole on a low calorie diet. It's time for question of the week with Diana O'Carroll. This week what does it take to blow a black hole? Hello I'm Beverly Johnson from Yorkshire and my question is Why don't black holes explode once they lose enough mass? If it takes a very massive star collapsing to form a black hole and Hawking's radiation eats it away, then why doesn't it blow up after enough matter is eaten away? Is there a critical point at which such an event could happen? I'm Andrew Ponson. I'm a research fellow at the Kaverley Institute for Cosmology at the University of Cambridge. 
The picture the question paints is that we have this black hole and Hawking radiation is making that black hole shrink slowly until the black hole gets to below some critical mass and then suddenly it's somehow it's not a black hole anymore and an explosion follows. That's not quite an accurate picture because actually there isn't a critical minimum mass for a black hole. It, it's more to do with the density of the matter. It's about packing matter in really tightly. And so it's even possible to have sort of microscopic black holes. So what actually happens is that a black hole never stops being a black hole. Once you've formed a black hole, that object is going to stay a black hole. But Hawking radiation does slowly eat away at the mass in a black hole. And in fact, the prediction is that a black hole should radiate faster and faster as it becomes uh, smaller and smaller. So right at the end, as a black hole becomes tinier and tinier, we do expect there to be a sort of energetic pop at the very end of its life as the black hole shrinks away to nothing and emits a final burst of very intense radiation. So there is sort of a bit of an explosion right at the end, but that's not because it's reached a minimum mass. It's just because it's radiating away energy faster and faster. So cosmologists do predict that there might be a small splurge of energy when the black hole becomes small enough, but this is due to the increasing speed at which it emits Hawking radiation. But then again, a black hole can get away with being microscopic and still be a black hole. On the forum, Sol Surfer said the final demise is a very small pop, only managing to reach solar luminosity for the last few nanoseconds, so one could only be detected if it was quite close. And Sifram said that black holes will only undergo this evaporation if they are the primordial sort and reach a Planck mass of 22 micrograms. That's pretty small. Next week, another problem of gravitational extremes. Hi, I'm Matt from Norwich. I was wondering, what is the minimal gravitational force required to keep astronauts healthy during long space voyages? Would it take one full G, or could we get away with less? Astronauts can suffer all sorts of problems in zero G, not least bone loss. So how little gravity can we get away with and stay healthy? Send your answers to chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can write on the forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum, or you can Facebook us or Twitter at Naked Scientists. Thanks, Diana. So if you know how much gravity we need to stay healthy, do get in touch. And that's actually all we have time for this week. Thanks ever so much to our guest, David Lomas from the Cambridge Institute for Medical Research, Chris Gilligan from Cambridge University and John Pickett from Rothamsted Research. Next week, we're handing the show over to you and it's all about your questions. So if you have a tricky science question for us, then get in touch. You can tweet at Naked Scientists right on our Facebook page. That's at thenakedscientists.com slash Facebook or drop us an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. 
the nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.